James chapter 4. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. It should. Been working on that for several months, haven't we? James chapter 4, as far as memorization in Sunday school. Uh, and uh, I would dare say uh, many of you could quote that uh, from memory uh, this morning. Let's just look at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll just go through verse 6 this morning. James chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, but cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. This morning we're going to talk about the struggles of the saints. The struggles of the saints. Now the Christian life is one struggle after another, it seems. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with the world. We struggle with other saints sometimes. And we struggle with Satan and the Lord himself. Jesus addresses, or James addresses the issue of these struggles. He speaks about the causes of these struggles and how we can have victory over them. We're going to look mostly at the struggles this morning and uh, briefly at some of the, uh, the, the results of dealing with that next Sunday. The Lord willing will look at how we can have victory over these struggles. But notice here in verse 1, the source, the source of our struggles. James says, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels come uh, among you come from? He asks that question. Uh, these Christians, no doubt that he's uh, uh, writing to, face the same type of conflicts that you and I face today. Uh, we have the word wars here. Now, that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Uh, but it's, a, it's from a word which means to fight or battle or dispute or strife or quarrel. That noise necessarily means that there's going to be a physical uh, ammunition and so forth, and, uh, and a killing in that sense. But there certainly is something that uh, deals with disputed disputes and strife and so forth. Uh, it's a word uh, in the Greek that we get our English word polemics from. Polemics means prolonged. And so it means there's a serious dispute or combat. The word fighting here, fightings, is a word which means a fight or a combat, a battle of individual conflicts or personal, a person at variance. The source of our fussing, uh, he is saying, is our lust, our desires, our passions. Battle within us as the root of our problems. The Bible says our lust war in us. And we know as believers we are in a battle. Paul tells us that in his uh, letters, uh, especially in Ephesians chapter 6. But here the word, or the verb war, is a, in the latter part of the verse, means to make a military expedition, to lead soldiers to war or to battle, to do military duty, to be active service, to be a soldier, to be 
fighting. And so lust is always on active duty in our bodies. Our conflict with the flesh is constant. It's a continual battle. And when we're controlled by our flesh, we adopt, adopt the motto, have it your way, which sometimes people uh, use that in their advertising, have it your way. When we do that, we become hard to get along with. And our lust is the source of our external conflicts with others. Now again, the word lust is from the word hedone. Uh, we get our English word hedonist or hedonism from hedone carries, uh, carries the idea of gratification or sensual, uh, that which is sensual, natural, or fleshly in its desire. Now when it's used in the New Testament, it's always used in a negative, ungodly sense. Hedonism is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and wish that, uh, that promises sensual satisfaction and delight. And that sounds like much of what's going on in our day in which we live. Paul warned that men would be like this in the end times. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says in verse 1, This know also which in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. And so the fighting that James refers to taking place among God's people, he's writing to uh, believers, not to unbelievers. We see a lot of this going on in the world, in the unbelieving world. But he's talking about this going on in God's people. James says, among you. And so when Christians are fussing and fighting, the world is watching, and they say, well, look at you, how they hate, how you hate one another, how you cannot get along. So nothing does more hurt to the cause of Jesus Christ than Christians fighting and arguing with one another over petty, stupid things. Eternal conflicts, external conflicts, I should say, are usually an indication of conflicts that are within a person. James refers to that here. The New Testament has addressed the problem of conflicts among believers in a number of places. Notice in the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church, if we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 um, and, and verse 11, we see this conflict that Paul is addressing uh, in their church, the Corinthian church. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. Here it says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them of which are at the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So the Corinthian church was having some issues. Uh, they were also finding, you find in chapter 6, they were suing one another in the church. 
And then Paul was concerned that when he saw them again, that there would be strife in the church. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 20. He says here, For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, that I would be found unto you such as you would not, lest there be debates, envies, wrath, strives, backbiting, whispering, swellings, tumults. See, the Corinthian church was having a problem with some battles within the church, within among the uh, members of that church. And so he says, there's conflict here in the churches. The Galatian church. If we go to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15. Galatians 5 and verse 15, he says, But ye bite and devour one another. Take heed that ye be not consumed one another, of another. Of the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse uh, 31. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31. Says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The, uh, the Ephesian church was having some conflicts. We go on into the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. He says in Philippians 1 and verse uh, 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my brother, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord and dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syndicate, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently, they were not of the same mind. Paul was saying, You need to get along. And of course, these churches all have their problems as any church does. And that's what Paul is addressing. That's what James is addressing. But we go back to the Gospels, we find that the disciples were having some issues as well. Uh, the disciples in Luke uh, chapter 9 and verse uh, 46. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Here he says, Then there were, arose a reasoning among them, which of them would be greatest. I think reasoning among them was kind of a nice way of saying that it's a debate. argument. <coughs> and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto him, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you, the same shall be great. Listen, God is pleased and glorified when we get along with one another. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. You see, God has given all of us different gifts and abilities that accomplish great things uh, in order to work together. There's a parable called the parable uh, 
of the tools. And that illustrates this truth. There was trouble in the carpenter's shop one day. The tools were fussing and quarreling with one another. One of them said, the problem is with the hammer. He's much too noisy. The hammer replied, nonsense. The blame goes to the saw. He goes backwards and forwards all the time. The saw said, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm not to blame. I think the problem is the plane. His work is so shallow. He does nothing but skim the surface. The plane protested loudly. I think the real problem lies with the screwdriver. He's always going around in circles. With that, the screwdriver shouted, that's ridiculous. The whole trouble, the whole trouble began with the ruler. He always measuring other people by his own standards. The ruler was rank and furious, and he barked out and said, What about the sandpaper? Surely he's always rubbing people the wrong way. Why are you picking on me, said the sandpaper. I think you ought to blame the drill, because he's so boring. And just as the drill was about to protest, the carpenter came into the wood shop, and he began to work. And using every one of his tools, he eventually built a beautiful pulpit from which the gospel of the grace of God was preached to thousands of people. And there's no limit of what God can do when we're yielded to his control and working together for his glory. You see, the source of our struggles often comes from within. And I should ask some of you carpenters, you ever heard your tools talk to each other like that? I know, probably not. That's why we call it a parable of tools. Secondly, notice our strife and struggles. We go on to James chapter uh, 4 here, and we see in verse 2 and 3 a picture of frustration. You lust and you have not. You desire to have and you cannot obtain. Well, the truth of the matter is our flesh is never satisfied. There are things we desire physically and mentally and emotionally. And James says that we lust, we kill, we fight, we war, and we ask. <coughs> we struggle with our flesh. I think there are many frustrated Christians today that have the wrong priorities in their life. The war in their heart creates war in marriages, in homes, and in churches. Anger and hatred at God spills over into anger toward spouses and family members and other Christians. That's the idea behind the word kill. In this verse, to kill is a hyperbole for murderous hatred, extremely destructive behavior. Perhaps even we could call it suicide. When the lusting person cannot fulfill his own desires, the result is often catastrophic to others and to himself. And the men of Sodom were struck blind by the angels. They continued groping for the door in a vain attempt to gain entrance and satisfy their loss. Absalom was consumed with the thought of ruling the nation of Israel to the point that he was more than willing to murder his father, David. Hatred is put on the same level as murder in the Bible. 1 John 3.15 says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You know, people complain uh, many times about blessings they don't have instead of the blessings they do have. 
And they become selfish and hateful and ungrateful. Some folks don't know what they want, but they feel sure they don't have it. James gives the reason for our strifes and our struggles. First of all, he said, you lust. Again, this word lust means to set your heart upon a thing or anxious self-seeking. It's the focus of one's life, and it's wrong, and the actions then result are wrong. You lust. Secondly, you desire. The word desire to have means uh, to burn with a zeal, to be heated, to boil with envy and ha- anger and hatred. Jealousy and bitterness will leave you unfulfilled. It will create conflicts in your marriage, in the church, in your family, with your fellow workers, and your fellow classmates at school. Ye lust, ye desire, ye ask not. Here's another reason for strife and struggles. So it's a lack of prayer. You know, daily prayers lessen daily cares. Satan trembles when he sees God's people on their knees. Don't fall into the trap of prayerlessness. Notice what the prophet Isaiah said about this problem. In Isaiah 64, verse 7, he said, And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. You lust, you desire, you ask not, and you ask amiss. To ask amiss meant that their praying was selfish, and it was with the wrong motives. They were asking for the wrong purpose and for selfish, evil motives. They desired to fulfill their sensual desires. Uh, The word consume here uh, means to spend or squander. They're asking the Lord for something for the purpose of spending it upon their lust. This is what the prodigal son did with his possessions. Listen, God supplies our need, not our greed. The Bible makes it clear that we are to petition the Lord for things according to His will. 1 John 5 and verse 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And when we're consumed with the things of this world, we tend to get distracted. Matthew 13, 22, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. So here are the strife and the struggles. You lust, you, you desire, you ask not, and you ask of this. But then there's the struggle with God. We see this in verse 4 and 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Excuse me, I skip verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God? God makes it clear that the friendship of this world makes one at odds with God. And that kind of a person is guilty of spiritual adultery and is an enemy or hostile toward God. This is true, especially of a believer that turns his back on the Lord and becomes carnal and worldly. Now this is the picture that God has given to us here. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a picture we like to talk about. The lifestyle of this world is totally contrary, opposed to biblical living. 
We're, we're to live in this world, but not like the world. And James says here in verse 5, basically, do you think the Scripture speaks to us for no reason at all, no purpose? God's jealousy or intense uh, intense desires, intensely desires the spirit that uh, he, uh, which he has make us to dwell in us. He wants his will to dwell in us, not our own will. We see here in verse 5 the phrase that dwelleth in us. It refers to a point in time past when the Holy Spirit came into us when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's a wonderful blessing we have as believers. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And that's a, something that happens once and for all. It has one time. You don't have to ask for it again. Now we are to command to be filled with the Spirit. That's to be controlled. Allow the Spirit to control us. But He comes to indwell us as soon as we trust Christ as our Savior. When we're saved, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us permanently. I'm so thankful for that. We're eternal secure, secure in Christ. You see, God is a jealous God. He commands that nothing else come before Him in our hearts. He jealously longs for our love and is angered when we love the world system above Him. The world is not to be our master. We can't serve two masters. Fortunately, some believers are mastered by this world, but they try to follow Christ too, and it won't work. No man can serve two masters. So involvement in worldly lifestyles, usually though, is a gradual process. Notice with me some stages of worldly involvement. First of all, there's a friendship with the world. That's what we see in verse 4. Knowing not the friendship of the world. Uh, we become, uh, in a sense, uh, buddies with the, the, the world. We, come, uh, we, we like to hang around them, hang out with the world. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any people that we know or acquainted with, even called friends, that are unsaved. But we're not to be friends with the world and the way the world lives. That's the first stage. And then, as we are friends with the world, in verse 4, it says, uh, the next stage is being spotted by the world. That's James chapter 1 and uh, verse 27. James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's stage number two. Stage number three is to have a love for the world. A love for the world's lifestyle. 1 John 2, at verse 15 uh, says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of, is of this world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Second Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul talks about a, a man who had forsaken him because he loved this present world. For Demas hath forsaken me. He forsook the ministry that Paul had. He forsook, forsook uh, doing what uh, God would have him to do because he wanted to live like the world and in the world. 
That's stage three. Stage four is conforming to this world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be not conformed to this world. Conformed to this world means to to be poured in a mold of this world, to, to live like the world. Stage five is to be chastened, to avoid condemnation. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 29 says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Then stage six is to be saved, but eternal rewards are lost. First Corinthians 3 and verse 15, If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so was by fire. Listen, the Christian is not to be ruined by living in the world, but by the world living in him. Our passions ought not to be uh, uh, a godly Christian that both Our passions ought not to be a godly Christian that glorifies Christ and lives a holy life no matter what the cost. I should say our passions ought to be a godly Christian, not an ungodly Christian. In the uh, forests of northern Europe, in Asia, there's a little animal called the ermine. Make a nice cat, wouldn't it? Uh, has uh, uh, snow white fur. You probably hardly see it out here in the snow today. But it's beautiful and uh, it's uh, well uh, liked in the fur markets of the world. In some countries, the robes of judges are aligned with this uh, white fur because it's emblematic of purity and honor. The Irvine takes a particular pride in its white fur coat. At all hazards, he protects it against anything that would spoil it. It is said that the fur hunters take cruel advantage of the ermine's care to keep his coat clean. They do not set a snare to catch him at some unwary moment, but instead, the hunters find the home of the ermine, usually a cleft in the rock or a hollow of a decaying tree, maybe uh, at the entrance, and they dab that entrance and the interior of his home with filth. Then the hunting dogs start their chase. And frightened, the ermine flees toward his home, his only place of safety. And when he arrives, he finds it all covered with filth, and he will not soil his pure white coat. And so rather than go into this unclean place, he faces the yelping dogs and preserves the purity of his fur at the price of his life. He would rather die than get dirty. I think that's an example for us as Christians. We ought to have this kind of an attitude. We'd rather die than get dirty when it comes to our relationship with the world. God helps us to be unspotted from the world and not to be an enemy of God. And then notice number four, strength 
for our struggles. Here we come to verse 6, and we find there is an answer to these struggles. I want you to notice with me in verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. Three areas that deal with the strength that we need for our struggles. First of all, notice the help. But he giveth more grace. Where would we be without the grace of God? We'd be sunk. We thank God for this wonderful grace, which he continually gives us. The core of our creed, our convictions, our character, the epicenter of our expectations, the root of our righteousness, the foundation of our faith, the zenith of our zeal, the pinnacle of our power and purity, the bloom of our beliefs of the Christian faith is grace. The grace of God. Grace affects every area of our Christian lives. Without it, we would be people that would be most miserable. Grace affects our past. We overcome the guilt and the gloom that our sins have produced. It overcomes that. Grace affects our present. It overpowers the grief, the grind, and the glitches of life. Grace affects our future, overlooking our goals and our glimpse of the future, giving us hope. And we would not spiritually survive without the grace of God. To live the Christian life without the grace of God would be like trying to catch a feather in a hurricane. It would be impossible. Because of the awe of God's grace, writers have painted their, uh, their, this in, in their, uh, from their hearts in wonderful songs. You think of John Newton's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There was Hildor Lillinus, who said, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. There's James Gray who humbly expressed his heart, only a sinner saved by grace. Only a sinner saved by grace. This is my story. To God be the glory. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Now what are all these songs about? What's that thing called grace? The Hebrew word for grace means to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, to faith. Jesus Christ stooped to the human race. He left the glory of, the, uh, 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 of, of heaven, the adoration of angels, to come to the glory of earth and the apathy of men. And he might suffer and die for our sins. Someone who says, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes out is affection. Love that stoops is grace. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. He stooped in order to save us from sin. Others have divine, uh, defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's unmerited favor, favor toward us. Grace is also the power and the desire to do the will of God in our lives. These are definitions that are good. They all kind of give us a good grasp of what grace is. You know, some men go through their lives degrading and devaluing and discrediting and disgracing and dishonoring God. Others make demands and they expect God to do what He wants them to do. 
Or they feel God owes them something and he better, uh, he, he better shape up or ship out and ship God out of their lives. And so they make ultimatums for God to show they lack understanding about who God is and who they are and are not. Listen, God owes us nothing. In grace, He gives to us everything. You know, the nature of and character of grace is giving. It's God's nature to give. It's, he's a God of grace because He freely gives to us. God bestows His grace not because of what we do or what we are or who we are, but because of who God is. He's God. The grace of God is unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. We're unworthy. We're unqualified. We're unentitled to receive it. But we do because it's given freely by a gracious God. Thank God it's free. We will never have to pay the Lord back in any way. God's greatest gift is the gift of Himself. Grace is God giving Himself to us. And that message is part of the gospel message. God giving himself to us and for us. Spurgeon who said a man may have too much money or honor, but he cannot have too much grace. Grace is God's help to us during our struggles. And so we find strength for the struggles. Notice the hindrance here in verse 6. With the positive, and grace is very positive, always comes a negative. God resisted the proud. You know, Satan has a way of inflating the ego of individuals. And when this happens, they tend to be unteachable. Uh, they do not have time for God or His truth. And when people get proud and arrogant and cocky, God resists them. Their pride creates a power struggle with God. The word resistive is again a military term which means to launch an attack in battle, to set oneself against. It was used of an army fully equipped and ready for battle. God hates the sin of pride and is in full battle array against the proud. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. The word proud means one who shows himself above other people. Even the Greeks hated this kind of pride. Uh, the man uh, by the name of Theophrastus described it as a certain contempt for all other people. Another writer called it the citadel and summit of all evils. God resisted Pharaoh of Egypt felt he did not have to obey the Lord in Exodus chapter 2. Men like Naaman, Balaam, and Belshazzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Herod, and Haman were resistant because they were proud. So that's the hindrance. Notice thirdly though the humility. He giveth grace unto the humble. God gives His grace to those who humble themselves before Him. What does it mean to have a humble attitude? Well, first of all, you recognize your appointed place. Philippians 4.11 Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. 
recognize your appointed place. Secondly, realize you are not worthless because God is still working. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And then revel in God's grace instead of one's own abilities. Humility causes you to see yourself from God's point of view and acknowledges God's grace and work in your life, despite the fact that you're a sinner and you have faults and you have weaknesses. And then remain the same person in all circumstances. By this I mean that we need to realize God will test your humility whether you have a servant's heart. And a true test of servanthood is if I act like one when I'm treated like one. The humble person remains the same person in all circumstances, whether he's put down or exalted, humiliated or honored. And then number five, regard yourself blessed and satisfied. Regard your blessings. Humility leaves a person stable, secure, and now, we've come to the end of verse 6 here, and yet this is not the end of the story. There's more to this story, and time does not allow us to look at, at that part of it. We'll, the Lord willing, look at this from the next uh, Lord's Day, pick up from this verse. But let me say, if you're struggling with the problems in your life, God's Word is a place you need to go to find Him. It is the grace of God that will carry you through. The grace of God will enable you to have victory over your struggles. And I think it would be good for us to review verses 7 through 10 for next week. The Lord willing, we'll, uh, our next study will look at the steps for victory in our struggles. I trust God will help us to realize how important these, uh, these uh, principles are in James chapter 4. Let's pray. Father,